want you to look again, Deuteronomy 1. You notice here our Lord, the Word of God rather, repeats in His Word an earlier command found in both Exodus and Leviticus. We'll look at it in a moment. Verse 17 says, You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. Now, folks, we all know, or you should know by now, that the law was given to Israel in part to show man the true character, the true essence, and the heart of the one true God. The law, the Bible itself, was given to show us that God is righteous, that our God is holy and kind and patient and merciful. And included in these revelatory laws is this injunction that we just read together against showing partiality favoritism, and especially by man's metric favoritism, is not something that God ever blesses or is pleased by. Leviticus chapter 19, and you'll look on the screen up there, you'll see this text. He says, "Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. This is Exodus chapter 23. You'll see that as well. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment, neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. That's fascinating, don't you think? That's amazing to me. All of these prior laws in the book of Exodus that were given, if you read them, so many of them were given to protect and to defend the poor. But when it comes to lawsuits, when it comes to judgment and justice, if you will, God says, do not show partiality, even to the poor. God doesn't like it when men pervert justice by showing favoritism to other people, and again, even if they're poor. And of course, this isn't just in the Old Testament. The book of James, as you know, is even clearer on this issue. You'll notice above on the screen, James chapter 2, and this really intriguing hypothetical that James offers up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit way back in the first century. Verse 1 says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place? And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool? Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of, which literally means with, evil thoughts? In other words, now here's the promise and the picture. Rich guy comes into church, and, and he gets noticed. People know who he is. Maybe he's famous. He's wealthy. He looks good. Pulls in in a Maserati or a Lamborghini. He's got, as the Bible says here, the bling. And he gets to sit in the best seat. The ushers say, oh, wow, so-and-so's here. He comes, let me help you find a really good seat. First class. Poor guy shuffles in. Cars smoking, belching, black smoke. <laughs> barely makes it. Steps out rags, and he's seated in the worst seat, way in the back, 
or literally, as verse 3 says, he gets to stand there. Go over there is what the verse basically says. And you know, it's a familiar story and a familiar scene of injustice in the Bible. I think that resonates with everybody in this room tonight. Nobody believes that under Christ, earthly advantage warrants any kind of special treatment. Unless, note this carefully, unless the special treatment occurs outside of Christ. What do you mean? In other words, outside of the gospel, outside of redemption and the Lord Jesus, outside of the church, earthly advantage always warrants special treatment. If you want to fly first class on an airplane, big leather seats, better food, more leg room, just pay more money. You have more money, you can pay more money, you get to fly first class. You want a skybox at Hard Rock Stadium to watch the Dolphins lose with air conditioning and personal service and privacy, it's pay to play in that regard. You want good seats, really good seats at a concert or a play, then just go to Ticketmaster, click on premium, pick your best seats and watch the price skyrocket. In the world, it is perfectly natural and acceptable to pay for a better seat or a better place in line. Courtside seats at the NBA Finals will not be filled with a bunch of preacher boys from a Baptist college unless they stole them. They're $40,000, $50,000, some of them. Movie stars, CEOs, pop stars, celebrities, they are the ones who have those seats courtside watching the Lakers or the New York Knicks. Not janitors or mechanics or valets. Is that fair? I mean, the valet, he's outside parking the cars for those who have the courtside seats. And again, in the world, then to the world, and by their metric, that's no big deal. That's a perfectly normal situation. Disney World is the worst at favoring the rich or those who have money. Nobody blinks an eye over that, apparently, because in the world at large, there's nothing presumably wrong with it. However, suppose for a moment we applied those same kinds of ethics here in our church, or in any church, Bible-believing church. So that, for example, you go to our website, and on our website, there's a seating chart every week. And you take your mouse, and you choose your seat, your spot in the pew, and suppose all of the pews, you can do it on your app, you know, on your phone, and all the pews are color-coded so that, you know, different colors represent different prices. And, of course, in a Baptist church, the most expensive seats are the back rows, amen? <laughs> These are the cheap seats right up here at courtside. Nobody wants them. In a Baptist church, you've got to come early to get a back seat. And, of course, if you don't pay, you don't pony up, here at church, you have to stand outside. We'll pipe it to you, like they do in some of these big games, or in the hallway. And then, by the way, on our website or on your, your new app that we're going to design, if you want to take communion, well, that's, that's a premium. If you're going to take communion, that's an upgrade. It's like extra baggage, you know, on a, 
luggage on an air, airplane. So add $50 to your seat. If you want to give a prayer request, 10 bucks, ching. Get baptized, at least $100. Take some tracks, okay, but you're going to be charged for those as well. All extra. And yes, and by the way, there's an exclusive line after church to greet the pastor and the staff. <laughs> but only for those who subscribe to JB 24-7. You have to become a premier member of Beacon's Best or whatever. You know, just pay up. Can I ask you a question? Is that also no big deal? Because that's exactly what you find in the world. That's exactly what you will find every day and it's normal outside of these walls. Is that no big deal? Would anybody in this room ever put up with that? Of course not, nor should you. In fact, the same people, the very same people, courtside at the Lakers game or flying first class, guess what? They wouldn't tolerate it either. We would be castigated in the media for that, as well we should. We would be ridiculed. Anybody would ridicule a church like that. But why? Why is that ethic different? Why is it, in fact, so different within these walls and within any New Testament church than it is without? Well, the short answer, beloved, is that the character of God is revealed in his law. We just read it. Let me ask you a question. When you look back on your life, can you remember a certain seat, a specific spot at a concert or a play or a ball game, and it was the best seat you ever had? Maybe someone gave you. That's how I get good seats. Somebody gives me the tickets. Maybe you got to sit in a skybox. You brag for 30 years that you were ringside at an Ali fight. I would probably brag about that. Maybe it was a seat behind home plate, Game 7 World Series, you know, like Marlin Man used to get all of the time. That uber-expensive center front seat at the London Opera House, which for me, the best seat in an opera during an opera is across the street in Burger King, amen? <laughs> and what's the worst seat you've ever had? If you travel a lot, it was probably on an airplane, stuck between two sumo wrestlers holding their newborn babies on a 22-hour flight to Japan. <laughs> the worst seat I ever had in Bible college the girl sat directly behind me in chapel. She was so sick, she couldn't stop her projectile vomit from going all down my neck. That was a bad seat. If you've bought tickets to some event, you know what it is to go to a seating chart, Kravis or wherever, and you wonder why a seat just one over is $100 less. Well, I'm going to get that seat. This one's five, this one's four, or whatever. It's $100 less. I'm going to get that one. Maybe it's a special deal, and you get there, and there's a beam right in front of you. <laughs> and you just watch the whole thing like this all day. So the chiropractor is $600. <laughs> and to make matters worse, just before this event begins, in walks some usher, and he removes the golden rope so that some VIP can finally have the, the open seat you've been coveting the entire time. Well, those VIPs... They pay a lot of money for those seats, that privilege. And to the world, there's just nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It is the ethic of our world. You wanted that seat, it's super cheap, so you got that. Because it's what you could afford, apparently, or because of the top, whatever. 
This is a situation that is acceptable in our society, but it is not acceptable in the kingdom of God inside the New Testament church. Not for the followers of Christ who gather as his people to meet and worship. And why? What is the big difference? Why can't we sell skyboxes over here in Building C, right? For one thing, nobody's going to go watch our guys on Tuesday night. <laughs> I might watch Michael, I don't know. Why not? Why can't we reserve the best seats in here? Whatever your idea of the best seat. Why can't we reserve those for the biggest givers? What's the difference? Because, folks, clearly there is one. If you go back up there to James 2, verse 2 says, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him. Now think about this for a minute. If you see a guy walk in, and he drove here in his Lambo, and he's got a three-piece suit, and he's tall, dark, and handsome, and he's got a model on his arm, and something inside you says, ooh, I'm going to meet this guy. Whereas somebody walks in here and they dragged in from the junkyard where they work. If you have respect in your heart, in your eyes, it says, if you say, sit here in a good place, ushers, or say to the poor, stand thou there, go over there, sit under my footstool, are you not impartial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? So, again, in one place in the world, it's normal, but with God's people, it's evil. Think about that. That's the word evil. What is the difference? The difference begins with James chapter 1 and verse 18. It says this. I'm not sure. Yeah, we have it. Look at it. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now, this is, being, this is the new birth. Born again. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. That we, God's people now, saved out of this world, should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, or creation. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift, and so it goes. In other words, look, being born again, being regenerated, being born of God, therefore we are God's child. There's a vast difference between this new creation in all of us in this room, and the old creation. And that is exactly why the very next verse begins with that word, wherefore, wherefore, my beloved brethren. What's he saying? Folks, he's saying this. There's a difference now. There's an eternal difference now. He's saying that once you become a child of God, you are begotten of God. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. For example, the first thing you'll notice, number one, is that we have different rules. Chapter 2, look at verse 8. It says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Do well. Now, he's quoting the law again. The law is given to reveal God. And we just read some of the law. It said, do not be partial. And here's the royal law. The royal law is the law of the king. We have a king. His name is Jesus and the royal law is, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself, verse 9, but, this is the opposite of loving your neighbors yourself, if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced or convicted of the law as transgressors. 
Folks, the royal law goes back to Deuteronomy that we just read. And as with all of the law, it is designed to be our schoolmaster. It's designed to be a reminder in part to all of us that we're lost sinners. God has a, God has a standard and we don't meet it. It's like a ruler that reveals just how short we've fallen. However, we just read it. You're begotten of God now. You're a new creature. Once you get saved and you're part of God's spiritual family, the ruler now illustrates the difference in the rules between the old and the new. So that what you might consider before and what you could never do before, you can actually do now. Including, James says, treating people without partiality. By the way, it's not just regard to finances either. Suppose we said all of the people with the highest SAT scores, this is on our website, you get the best seats in church. Bring your IQ scores to church, our ushers will look at it, and we'll seat everybody accordingly. Where all of the men are up front and all the women sit in the back. Suppose it's race or nobility. Or suppose it's some natural-born American. You get to sit in the padded pews and everybody from the South, extra padding on the pews. So you see, folks, no matter what the issue, when it comes to the kingdom and the family of God, there's no room. Zero. Because God has revealed himself to us. There is no room for pride or partiality. And you know, it goes both ways. Class warfare, that's also evil. Our world loves it. They love it. Our media, the protesters. In Leviticus 19 again, this is what we read, and let me read it to you again. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Can I ask you a question? Did Israel follow that law? Not hardly. But you can. You can because you're a child of the living God. And beloved, the reason you can is that being born again, we all have the same father. How can one of us think that we're better than any other of us when we have the same heavenly father? You know, the person who wrote this book of James, as you know, is the half-brother of Jesus. He actually begins this chapter, we noted a moment ago, with the words, my brethren. In verse 5, he says, my beloved brethren. James says, if a brother or a sister be destitute. Wait a minute. A brother or a sister? Yes, that's what we are. Because we have the same father. God, who is no respecter of persons, calls us not to be partial. Put it this way. Suppose I, as a father, had my kids over for dinner. And I said at the dinner table, I, I make some steaks on the grill. And we get to the dinner table and say, okay, kids, Rick, Andy, Ben, Sarah, Crystal, who made the most money last year? That's who gets to sit next to me. <laughs> Let me see your tax forms. Or, hey, hey, which one of you graduated with the highest GPA? Because I want you 
two of you to sit on either side of me with the highest GPA. And you're the ones who get the stake. Can you imagine? Actually, when you look at our world and you look at human history and the carnal mind, you don't even have to imagine it. It's precisely what the world does with one another. Man without God has only led to thousands and thousands of years of slavery and tyranny and racism and bigotry and feudalism and totalitarianism. And in the guise of Marxism, oppression, Nazism, communism, the worst kind of religious genocide and darkness imaginable. That's the world. It'll always be the world. What James is saying is that true children of the living God have and can live by a different set of rules. James says in chapter 1, verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That doesn't sound like karma or ISIS or Islam. It sounds like Jesus. Pure. The second thing I want us to consider from all of this is that, number one, we have different rules. That's why we don't do it in here. We have different rules. It's this book. This is our metric. Number two, we have different schools. Look at Deuteronomy again, chapter 1, our original text. Verse 18 says this, And I command you at that time all the things which ye should do. Command? You know, if you go through the law, there's no suggestions. There's no uh, good ideas. There's no one person, one vote. It's God commanding us. And indeed, in chapter 2 of verse 1 of James, I think it'll be up there, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I love this phrase, are you ready? The Lord of glory with respect to persons. You see what he's doing here, right? The Holy Spirit is saying, I'm going to give you a command about don't respecting persons, but let me tell you where it's coming from. The Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. The Holy Spirit of God, before simply condemning this respect of persons, does so after he lays out this very powerful context. He is the Lord, our Lord. He is the Lord of glory. So what I mean when we say we have different schools, our master, our teacher, our model, and our savior, he's not just Jesus. He's Jesus Christ. And he's the Lord and he's the Lord of glory. Wow. So what's that mean, Pastor? It, what it means, beloved, is that when it comes to seats in the whole universe, there's only one. When it comes who gets who gets to sit in the highest seat, the best seat, there's only one that really matters, and it is the throne of glory. And nobody will ever get to sit there except for the one who's worthy. And it's not us. Remind you that the man who penned the book of James, the man who was inspired by God in this case with Jesus' little brother. And if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that for much of his life he wasn't exactly sure who his older brother was. I can't imagine having to grow up in that situation. 
Jesus, you think you're perfect. I am. <laughs> and he wasn't sure growing up, is he really the Messiah? He didn't know until one thing happened, the resurrection. That's called glory. When Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and then resurrected and rose, James understood then and believed that this man is not just Jesus. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James opens this epistle with these words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, James, the brother, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are a servant of the Lord Jesus, you are a servant of God, the Lord of glory. And you know, Bible, when you get this truth, when you get this reality into your heart, when you surrender to this eternal glory, that's when we realize it doesn't matter where we sit. It doesn't matter if you can sit up here or back there or wherever. People who fight over seats, you do realize, or position, they're really fighting over glory. Think about that next time. You're really fighting over glory. In fact, let me remind you of what is really at the core of, in our society right now, these social activists. Because we hear them all the time, and they pontificate about, they care about the poor, and they care about this race or that race, or women, or LGBTQ plus whatever, or they care about immigrants or white supremacy, whatever it is. If you've ever noticed, it doesn't matter the cause at all. When people spend their lives arguing that we should get better seats, we deserve a seat at the table, whatever it is, when people say, I'm fighting for the rich, or I'm fighting for the poor, I'm fighting for the women, I'm fighting for the elderly, I'm fighting for the, the artists. I want more Native Americans to have better seats. When people do that, just look at the, look at the results. Every time people fight and argue for better seats, even if it's supposedly for the others or the children or whatever, a, it doesn't work. It's never worked. It's always divisive. It always spirals it downward. And B, it leads to the very thing they say they're fighting against. Every single time. Castro said he wanted better seats for the people in, in Cuba. We got to get rid of Batista because we got to make everything equal. And he made everybody equally poor and oppressed. Lenin said the same thing about Russians, and Idi Amin said the same thing about Uganda, Mugabe about Zimbabwe, and Mao in China, and Chavez in Venezuela, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Jim Jones in Guyana, and the list goes on. In fact, it was the exact same thing with Lucifer in heaven. What is it with Lucifer? He wanted a better seat. Father, Son, Spirit. Well, why can't there be one more? I'm an archangel after all. Equality. He wanted one of the best seats in the house. It's always fascinating to me that in Saul Zelensky's book, he claimed to fight for better seats for all mankind, for, for the common man or whatever. In that book, you may remember at the very beginning, he hails Lucifer as the first and original radical. It never works when men seek for glory over other people. 
Because there's only one glory seat and there's only one beloved who's worthy to sit on it. This morning we mentioned the ancient question of Jews back in Psalm 2410, who is the king of glory? That great question, who, this is Psalm 20, 24, 25, uh, yes. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is. I've made this observation in the past. Everybody loves Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. People love it. I mean, people love to quote it, and I do too. They put it on Pinterest. Really pretty flowers or whatever and some still waters. But you know, without Psalm 24, that Jesus is the Lord of glory, Psalm 23 is just poetry. If the shepherd of Psalm 23 is not the Lord of glory in Psalm 24, then by all means, folks, don't quote Psalm 23 at a funeral. Don't talk about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, because if Jesus is not the Lord of glory, there is no forever house. So what does the Bible say in our text? He says there's one Lord of glory, only one. He has the throne of glory. You know, people in power love to give and receive certain titles and distinction. Kings and queens love to be called your majesty or your highness. The pope is called your holiness. A bishop is called your grace. A cardinal is called your eminence. Judges are called your honor. And so it goes. They all have special seats. But no one in their right mind calls another person your glory. Only God is truly glorious. And when you look at the history of man's oppression, slavery, and tyranny, and hatred, and prejudice, you will find that the only thing that ever truly changes that condition, it's not legislation. The time and money wasted in this country. It's not revolution or religion or radicals. The only true miracle of change, beloved, is whenever a person is born again, begotten of God, and they become the first fruits of God's creation. And then they see people through these new rules. You know why Louis Zampanelli went back to Japan unbroken to forgive and love his torturers? The same with Fukita, who led the raid in Pearl Harbor, and he and Sergeant DeShazer, who was tortured, those two men became the closest of brothers and friends. Do you know why a church in Alabama has an African-American pastor and a former KKK wizard as the associate pastor? Do you know why John Newton, former slave trader, as I said in the funeral yesterday, allowed an entire boat was on fire, an entire boat filled with slaves down in the bottom to sink and to die. You know how you could write Amazing Grace and then work tirelessly to end slavery with William Wilberforce? I can tell you why. There's only one reason why. He didn't go to a class. He didn't go to a re-education camp. It's because in 1785, Wilberforce became a believer, and in 1748, John Newton became a Christian. The amazing grace that saved a wretch like him. Then, as believers in Jesus Christ, they finally understood that not only is Jesus the Lord of glory, 
and all of the rest of us who are saved are brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, ultimately, a Christian in God's kingdom realizes that it doesn't matter where I sit. It doesn't matter my title. Nobody's looking at me anyway. Shouldn't be. What matters is that for all of eternity, all of his own will be seated around his throne as he is high and lifted up and we will give him the praise he's worthy of. The difference is we have different rules in different schools and then finally, we also have different tools. James says in chapter one, in verse one, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, greeting. And then in chapter two, verse one, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect to persons. So what do you mean by different tools? You know, when I mentioned Saul Alinsky, he wrote that book called Rules for Radicals. And in that book, he describes all kinds of tools for change and for equality. And again, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked and it'll never work. It just leads to more oppression, more tyranny. The same thing with Sigmund Freud and that psychology. The same thing with Karl Marx and his tools, with Mao and his little red book, with Chomsky and Farrakhan. All of their tools are just hammers and every problem in society is a nail. And none of those tools include God. Have you ever noticed? Isn't it interesting that all of them exclude God? The child of God have a, has a different set of tools. These be the words, it says in Deuteronomy. James calls it the engrafted word. He says it's the engrafted word, and if you look at it as you would a mirror, you are changed by that word, changed by the word of God. That's our tool. Another tool that James mentions, and it's all through the law, is prayer. We have the Bible, we have prayer, and then he says in chapter 5, who is joyful, let him sing praises. That's praise. The Bible Prayer, praise, the local New Testament church. I'm telling you, beloved, we have a whole different set of rules, but also a different set of tools. You show me a believer who regularly gets on his knees, regularly opens up the word of God, regularly praises God for who he is, the Lord of glory, and rejoices in the Lord. I will show you a believer who is not seeking self-glory. Instead, just like we preached on this morning, he's full of mercy and grace and wisdom and submission to the king of glory and the king of kings. It is different. We have different rules. We have different schools. We have different tools. So that the one thing that ought to remind every believer in this room, every church, this church, is that there's, there's something eternally and intrinsically different about us. And yes, it's miraculous. It is glorious. It is wonderful. And that something is really someone. It's the Lord. He is the Lord of glory. He is the same Lord of glory who calls us to never show favoritism with worldly measurements. Someone walks in those doors 
Look at them the way God tells us to. Tells us to. Measure them in that way. Someone next to you, someone in front of you, someone behind you. The Corinthians, Paul says, comparing themselves among themselves were not wise. It's foolish. It's foolish. Because only one of two things can happen. You will either look down at them, and that's pride, or you will look up to them, and that can cause discouragement. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I wonder who might say tonight, Pastor Blaylock, I'm a believer, but I needed this reminder. Look, this is nothing new to anybody here. We know the metric of Scripture. We know God has revealed himself. And I'm glad. I'm glad we're not like the world. I'm glad that that the ethic inside of a Bible-believing church is not the same as it is at the Kravis Center or the halls of Congress, or some university. I'm so thankful. None of us in this room are any better than any, any one of us. For but by the grace of God. Pastor, I'm saved tonight, but I needed this reminder in this message, and God has spoken to my heart in it. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building, and God bless you, and God bless you. Can I just say this real quick? Do you know what? Your impact in the world, your impact in your family and people around you would be so much more powerful if they saw that you treated them the same way that you would treat someone with money or celebrity. That you treated them the way God would call us to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not partiality. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not sure that you're saved. Could we pray for you? If you're not sure you're saved, on your way to heaven? Is that you? Would you say, Pastor, pray for me? Who would say that? Would you lift your hand up? I'm not sure I'm saved tonight. All right. Ask the Lord. You know, it it grieves God. In fact, more than grieves. The Bible says that God resisteth the proud. I don't want God to resist me. And he gives grace to the humble. That's what I want. He lifts you up. Let's decide tonight, afresh and anew, that we want to please God by not being partial with evil thoughts. Father, bless now the invitation, and I pray this place, this church, this body and assembly will always at least strive, Lord, with humility, with submission to you and your word, not to show partiality, We understand the balance, Lord, of giving honor and to whom honor is due. We understand the balance that there are positions and there are callings and titles in your church. We understand that, and even in in government that you've ordained. But we also know, Lord, that in your word you have revealed to us that there's no room for pride in any of that. And I pray that we won't have room for it in our hearts. Bless now the invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.